This podcast is sponsored by the National Restaurant Association show. Want to learn more about marketing from big chains? We've got you covered. With daily sessions in the Marketing Matters track, you'll learn how to attract customers and keep them coming back. From marketing to menu pricing, learn business strategies to remain top of mind with today's consumer and drive profits. The inspiring possibilities that feed you are in Chicago, May 16th through 19th, 2020. Visit nationalrestaurantshow.com and register with code MENUFEED for $25 off your registration fee. Welcome to MenuFeed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media's two food service brands, Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor covering menu, food, and drink for both brands. Today I'm sitting down with Jan de Rochefort, founder and CEO of Boqueria, a Spanish tapas bar and restaurant. Boqueria started in New York City, expanded to Washington, D.C., and recently opened its first outpost in Chicago. The menu features a seasonally rotating selection of tapas, paella, and Spanish-inspired dishes, and the newest location will include local ingredients that reflect the Chicago markets. Welcome, Jan. So I've been to a couple of the Bocaria locations in New York, and they're always packed and very lively. So what do you do specifically to create the vibe of an authentic Spanish tapas bar? So I spent some time in Spain when I was younger. I lived in Madrid and Barcelona, and I always loved the energy there was something that was really distinctive about um, those institutions that you walk in and there's food that's displayed behind the bar. People are eating, standing up. Um, it's very, it's customizable in the sense that you can stay there for 20 minutes, grab a beer and a tapa, or you can make an evening out of it. And mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, and the other thing that I think is great is that it blends what I call the fluidity of the bar and the conviviality of the table. So it feels different if you're sitting at a bar just having a drink or if you're eating. And the eating part sparks conversation. You're much more likely to turn to somebody to your right or to your left and start a conversation over a meal than you are just over a drink. So that's what I loved about it. Mm-hmm. How did we recreate that atmosphere in, in our restaurants? Um, We did it by adapting um, some of the things that are great about the Spanish tapas bars to what people expect um, in the U.S. So we can't just have tapas that are food that's already prepared sitting on the bar because patrons don't want it and the health department says you cannot do that. So um, what we do is we have somebody behind the bar preparing food, um, slicing jamón serrano or um, cheese, putting together salads. So we mix the, the bars have both beverage preparation and food preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have you know, hams that are visible. We'll have menus in Spanish menus on um, blackboards as part of our uh, decor and part of the signage. And probably one of the most important things is that we have predominantly high seating. So we have predominantly high seating throughout the, the dining room. And um, that was a bit of a gamble when we first did it. Mm-hmm. Um, my chef at the time was very scared of it. Right. Um, some, other people, some other people, including investors, thought it was a bit of a risk because nobody was doing that. Um, but, but you were a trendsetter because now it's very popular. Now it's much more popular, yes. Um, so, you know, imitation is <laughs> a sincerest form of flattery, they right. say. Um, 
what I liked about it was that it carried over the energy of the bar into the dining room and made the bar and the dining room really a shared space. Mm -hmm. It also changes the conversation with the server. It's a much more comfortable conversation on sort of an equal footing, if you will. If people are looking at each other eye to eye because you're sitting at a tall table and somebody else is, is, is standing than it does if you're sitting at a regular table. And it just carries a higher energy level. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think all of those things make Book Rear restaurants, uh, including the one in West Fulton, Chicago, feel like what you experience when you walk into a tapas bar in Barcelona or Madrid. Mm -hmm. So the one in Chicago just opened this week. And yesterday. How, yesterday, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in right after yeah, your you're opening. <laughs> so how did you um, change the design for Chicago at all? I, I thought it was a little bigger than the one I had gone to in New York, but maybe I'm wrong about it, that. It is. It, mm -hmm. it definitely is. Um, the one in Chicago, I think, has about 100 seats in the dining room and then a fairly sizable bar and a kitchen counter. Um, part of that is um, because we wanted to have a bit more space here, so we have a bit more space between, between tables. And part of it is because we found a great space in uh, the West Loop mm -hmm. um, that we wanted to take, and um, we, we made it work. Oh, great. And you mentioned um, to me earlier that you um, designed the bar so that the food is kind of the star. Yeah, right? So can you elaborate on that a little sure. bit? Sure. Yeah, when, when I was, we were designing the first um, Book Rear restaurant, the, our architects showed me a rendering of the bar that um, when we were designing the first Booker restaurants, my architects came to me with a rendering of a bar that looked like it was a beautiful cocktail bar in a W hotel. Mm -hmm. And it was just wrong for us. And I sort of drew a ham over the bar and told them that the ham was there first <laughs> and the ham stayed. And so the bar had to fit with the ham and not the other way around. Um, the, we incorporating, we're incorporating preparation of food with, with the bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the first thing that people see when they walk into any one of our restaurants is the tapa station and somebody preparing food and slicing ham or preparing cheese boards. Cool. So why is the idea of promoting a communal spirit over shared food and drink so relevant to what, you know, the way diners eat today? It seems to, you know, everyone likes to share, but tapas were kind of the first type of sharing food that there was. <laughs> they definitely were. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, original, um, the original small plate, um, definitely. And I think what's happening today is there, there are a lot of ways of getting food, right? So the primary reason people come to us isn't because they're hungry. Mm. Right? If they're hungry, they can go to a food hall, they can get any number of different dishes delivered at home, they can go to a fast casual restaurant, there are you know, more ways than ever of getting food. They can even get Blue Apron to deliver um, food to them, and they have minimal prep to do. If they're coming, people are coming to us primarily because they want to get together. They want to connect, mm. um, and they want to do it you know, IRL, if you will. And so our job is to make that enticing, alluring, and fun. And, and I think that um, restaurants more than ever serve that purpose of, creating a shared experience, a way for people to um, connect um, in real life, not over their screens, mm -hmm. um, and to enjoy time together. And that's that's part of our, our fundamental purpose. So our, our company's purpose is to create positive energy to help people feel more connected and alive. And it's true of the way we approach the employee experience, and it's true of the way we approach the guest experience. Mm -hmm. 
So how does the food do that? I mean, I know that your menu um, has evolved over time a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about the food and how you prepare what people want to eat and not what the chef wants to eat? Yeah, I, th I think you're, you're, you're referencing something one of my publicists told me once when we were sitting at a rather um, complex dinner trying to decipher what was in our plate. Um, his quote was, uh, chef, is this your dinner or my dinner? Right. And uh, we definitely want um, Bokria's food to be the guest dinner, not ours. And the way we do that is by um, coming up with by coming up with food that we think is fun to have, is interesting, but primarily um, in, enjoyable uh, without having to be a foodie, uh, without having to know a lot about food. Um, we wanted to, the experience is primarily about getting together and then the food has to sort of stand up and break through that and get noticed. Right. And the best reaction is, wait, hang on a second, have you tried this? That's great. So what are some of the more popular tapas as, you know, as Bocaria has evolved and, you know, you, I guess some have risen to the top as more popular than others? Can Absolutely. You... So we, you know, our, our menu is constantly evolving, uh, or I should say part of our menu is constantly evolving because um, we, we started with a menu that would change relatively often. And over time, we found that there are dishes that um, provoke armed insurrection if we try to take them <laughs> off the menu. Right. And um, so I think our, our menu is increasingly things that people come to us for. Mm -hmm. um, as I said earlier, their guests today have an incredible array of ways of getting um, different types of food, um, whether it's, you know, the time at food market or um, delivery services or others. They come to Bocaria um, not because they want variety from Bocaria, but because they come back to us for the things that they remember us for, that they loved the last time they had, and they're coming back for that. So what are those dishes? I mean, some of our most popular dishes are iconic Spanish dishes. Tapas are still a relatively underdeveloped category. There really are not that many Spanish restaurants. Not that many authentic um, tapas restaurants. Especially in Chicago. Whether in Chicago, New York, anywhere, really. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly underdeveloped when yeah. you think about Spanish food relative to Italian mm. or Mexican or other categories. Um, there are very few restaurants offering um, Spanish food. So I think we have an obligation to give the people what they want and what they want are the classics when they come to us. So mm -hmm. they want the gamas arajillo, um, which are um, shrimp, um, cooked in olive oil, garlic. Um, well, traditionally, so, and this is a point of differentiation about our food, traditionally it is, you know, garlic, olive oil, um, sometimes guindilla, pepper, and shrimp. Mm. Um, we think of our food as being authentically Spanish, but not necessarily traditional Spanish. Mm -hmm. So the way that lives and the way that's expressed, for instance, with the gamba salajillo is that there is a lobster stock reduction and brandy which gives it more depth of flavor than a more traditional preparation. So it's, I, I would say we show, we have dishes that are authentically Spanish that have Spanish passports, um, <laughs> but they've traveled a bit and they've evolved. Right. And I noticed that you do head on shrimp. Are those hard to get in Chicago? Not at all. Really? Because no. when I try and shop for seafood on my own, I, you know, I have to go to special markets sometimes. They don't have yeah. them in every supermarket. Uh, we, we get our like, seafood from uh, Fortune Fish and yeah. Gourmet. 
I guess I'm just not in the same category as you are. So well, I don't know. I, I have I'm, to go I'm to I'm the sure, supermarket. I'm sure, we, I'm sure we could give them, give, give you their uh, their phone number. Yeah. So. Um, or you could come to the book, yeah. <laughs> so what are some of your favorite tapas that, you know, over the years, which have you... But there's a, there's a dish on the menu right now that I love, which are um, uh, grilled squid mm. with um, white beans, um, that are cooked with uh, squid ink um, mm. and guinea pepper, and I think it's just a fantastic uh, dish. There's another one which is escalivada, and escalivada are fire roasted vegetables, which in Spain would be served. You serve roast vegetables, um, actually, you really char vegetables over an open flame, so they get that really deep, um, woody flavor, and then peel them. Um, and marinate them in olive oil. And in mm. Spain, it would be served very traditionally, just those peeled sliced vegetables with, with olive oil. In our case, we pair it with um, a few other things like a um, labna. Yeah. Right. So in our, oh, in our case, we pair the, the escalivada preparation with a labna yogurt-based um, sauce mm. and um, some bread. And that just, it complements it really well, mm. and it provides a contrast in flavor, which I think makes it more interesting. Some of the purists may disagree, <laughs> um, but I think it makes it more interesting, okay. and our guests seem to agree. So how are you incorporating some local products into the Chicago menu? Because I read that that was one of the things that you're trying to accomplish. No, absolutely. Yeah. So we, um, well... We didn't have to go very far for our bread because we buy it from from Publican. Oh yeah, it's um, right down the block. <laughs> right, right around the corner. So yeah. that that was easy. Um, as I said, we, we get our seafood from Fortune Fortune mm -hmm. uh, Fish and Gourmet, uh, and then we um, get uh, produce um, from uh, Tessa Produce. Uh, we're mm -hmm. looking into uh, getting uh, some produce at the right time from Nichols Farm and Seedling Farm, mm. and we also source some protein, some free range chicken. Pork belly, eggs, and oxtail from Stegel family farms. Oh, cool! So we do, you know, that's another part of being um, authentically Spanish. Mm -hmm. Is what's authentically Spanish is getting the best local product available. Right. It's not necessarily flying it in. Right. Cool. And how does the drink menu complement the food menu? Our wine list is exclusively Spanish. Oh, cool! Um, which it offers an opportunity for discovery. Mm -hmm. and a challenge for education. <laughs> so we spend a lot of time training our servers. Kieran Chavez is our beverage director, mm -hmm. and he spends a lot of time training our servers on Spanish wines so they understand not just winemaking itself and the difference between different wines, but different regions of Spain and different varietals that are um, used almost exclusively in Spain, mm -hmm. and can then suggest alternatives to people who may not be familiar with Spanish wines. And then I noticed you also have sangrias by the pitcher, so, and you have some seasonal ones. We have, yeah, we have a variety of sangrias. We have red, white, and rosé sangrias, which are there year-round, and then every season we'll have at least one or two seasonal sangrias. Uh, there's one uh, that uh, Kieran puts uh, roasted pineapple in that's amazing. Mm. And then uh, we also, you know, I was talking earlier about discovery and education. 
We also feature um, Sherry, which I think is one of the greatest Spanish contributions to the beverage world. Mm -hmm. And it's very both underappreciated and, and, and misunderstood because a lot of people hear Sherry and they think of something sweet that their grandmother might right. drink. Like Harvey's Bristol cream. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. So right. most sherry is actually bone dry right. and very briny and it, it makes for an amazing, a great um, uh, aperitif before dinner. Right. It really goes well with tapas because when that's I was fantastic. in Spain, I, I really started appreciating sherry. Yes. Yes. But And you also have some really cool signature cocktails mm -hmm. um, that you do, like margaritas and so we have a shishito margarita, yeah, I like uh, that. <laughs> which is a spicy margarita mm -hmm. that was developed by one of our bartenders in Washington, our DuPont Circle location, and we have not been able to take it off the menu since, mm. because it is by far and away our, our, our highest seller. And um, it's great because it's, you know, it's not authentically Spanish, but it uses, yeah. you know, shishito peppers, which we use in lieu in, of uh, Pajuan peppers mm -hmm. uh, on, our, on our menu. And then you know, every season we have different cocktails on the menu. Um, we have uh, one called the Brooklyn. We have uh, one called the Devil Wears Manzana. Because <laughs> manzana is apple, so the Devil Wears Apple for some reason. Uh, I had two. I had two of them after the opening. That was very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, in addition to the tapas and small plates, you have um, a chef's menu option. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little? Well, that's all about making life easier for our guests. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, if I, if I, I think a lot of our guests are like me, they need to, they have a lot of decisions to make every day. Mm -hmm. And right. by the time dinner rolls around, they'd like to make fewer decisions. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So we try to make that easy by offering um, two different alternatives on the chef's menu. Um, we will customize, uh, it's, uh, we will customize the menu based on people's preferences, if there's anything they specifically want or don't want, if they have mm -hmm. any allergies, if they're vegetarian, we'll craft the menu for them. Um, it's, it's a set price. And um, then we take over, and yeah, if they're still hungry by the time we're done sending out dishes, we'll keep sending more. So that's like a, a multi-course kind of meal. Thing. It is, yes. But it's not course, of course. Right. But yes, mm -hmm. there's several... There, there, we send out a range of Thank dishes um, that is customized based on the table, their preferences, uh, and generally finish with paella. So, yeah, let's talk about the paella a little sure. bit. So I noticed when I was visiting that you had this huge paella pan in the yes. kitchen. And then you had some smaller ones. So you do several different kinds of paella. I yes. Guess. Well, most of our paella are um, larger, well, I say larger format for at least two people, mm -hmm. so two, two to four people. And uh, it's a relatively traditional seafood uh, paella. Mm, it's really good. <laughs> um, so, although you know most consumers are familiar with tapas and many are familiar with paella, they might not be familiar with all the authentic Spanish ingredients that you use and some of the preparations. So, how do you balance that authenticity with familiarity so customers? won't feel intimidated or, you know, uneducated. Yeah. Well, there, there are a few things. I think, you know, the on our, when you read our menu, the, the headline name of each dish is in Spanish, but then all the explanation is in English. Oh. So they, they don't have to know Spanish to be able to read through the menu. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, while there are a few ingredients like the ham, the jamón serrano, um, or... Um, uh, chorizo or other products like that that are imported from Spain that are specific to Spain, 
most of the things that go, you know, through the back door from deliveries into our food are ingredients that people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. It isn't as complex or as foreign as, say, you know, Thai cuisine might be or Vietnamese or Indian. Um, most it's, it's a lot of meat and potatoes, right? <laughs> meat, potatoes, and fish. Right. So those are ingredients that people are familiar with. So it's really um, far less foreign and challenging than a lot of people might think. Yeah, than some other cuisines. Yes. And I, I think most people Not like... Not the disparage cuisines. I love them. <laughs> but I, you know, I think something like a piquillo pepper is kind yes. of mainstream now. I mean, everybody, True. they serve them in all kinds of well, bars now. Yeah. So one of, one of my uh, investors actually sent me a picture of um, Serrano ham being sold at Costco. Really? Yes. So <laughs> that tells me it's going mainstream. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about how the you educate servers and the servers mm-hmm. guide customers through yeah. the menu. So can you elaborate on that a little and why it's so important to your well, concepts? Why is it important to... To, you know, Bocaria, I mean... To well, I think that people who come to Bocaria, a lot of people who come to us um, have been to Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and But there are a lot of people who have not been to Spain, and coming to Bocaria is a way of traveling to Spain without ever leaving Chicago mm-hmm. or New York. And um, we want to make sure that our servers are well versed on the food, understand the origins of the dishes, um, understand the ingredients, and can serve as, as tour guides, if you will, mm. um, and help introduce people to things they may not have had before, um, and help them understand that you know they're they're really very accessible um, and create fans. Was it difficult to find labor in Chicago when you came here? Because I know that's a problem everywhere now. You know it actually has been much easier than we had feared. Mm, um, I think uh, every every city right now is a difficult labor market. Mm. I, I, I don't know of any city that uh, where restaurateurs in particular are saying that you know, they, uh, they're having a very easy time finding people. Everyone is, is saying that it's very mm-hmm. tough to find people. But um, it's turned out to be much easier in Chicago than, than we'd anticipated. We, we have uh, an amazing staff. We have a front of house management staff that has come to us from you know, different restaurants in the city. I mean, everyone who's hired management is from Chicago and has worked in Chicago for years. Uh, and I think, I don't know whether we were, I don't know if we're lucky or good, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so what's next for Bocaria? How will the menu evolve like in 2020? Everyone's talking about 2020 now. So we want to look ahead a little bit and talk about that. So I, you know, we don't plan our menu changes that far in advance. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that there will, a lot of our seasonal menu items um, will be vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, we are finding that, you know, I think last year we put about 50 seasonal items on through the course of the year. Of those, all the top sellers were vegetable dishes. Oh. Um, so I can tell mm-hmm. you that you will see a lot more fun mm-hmm. takes on vegetables on Bokeria's menu next year. Cool. I think everyone's becoming a little more plant forward. I mean, it isn't just people so, who are yes. eating, you know, vegetarian. Well, we're clearly seeing it in terms of mm-hmm. you know, where people, what people are choosing to order. Yeah, that's interesting. And are you thinking of expanding to other cities or opening more locations in Chicago? Or are you waiting? Yes. <laughs> well, that, so, that sums it up. 
<laughs> we are we uh, are opening in Nashville. Oh, cool. In September of next year. Wow. And we're looking at additional locations um, mm-hmm. in, in other cities, um, maybe even farther south. Um, some some of my long um, tenured uh, senior staff have asked me for some sunnier climates. So we're, we're looking south as well. Oh, cool. Well, thank you very much. You're I really welcome. appreciate your time. Thanks for having this me. This has been great. Thanks for sharing Bulgaria's story, Jan. Join us next time to delve into more menu trends that will help you stay ahead of the curve. This podcast is sponsored by the National Restaurant Association show. Want to learn more about marketing from big chains? We've got you covered. With daily sessions in the Marketing Matters track, you'll learn how to attract customers and keep them coming back. From marketing to menu pricing, learn business strategies to remain top of mind with today's consumer and drive profits. The inspiring possibilities that feed you are in Chicago, May 16th through 19th, 2020. Visit nationalrestaurantshow.com and register with code MENUFEED for $25 off your registration fee.